trying to get back to the basics of great products. Power comes from sharing information. I try to convince people to slow down. Free. Yeah. Open. This is the Soak Dice Podcast. Before we go to the episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor, CapChase. Imagine that you could get access to the revenues you'll generate in the next 12 months already today. What would it mean for you? CapChase helps fast-growing recurring revenue companies finance growth without taking on debt or dilution. Whether you want to invest in growth or R&D, CapChase turns your predictable revenue into growth capital today. CapChase has helped founders unlock hundreds of millions in financing to fuel their growth and on average extend their runway by eight months and spared upwards of 16% dilution. So go see how insanely easy it is by clicking the link in the show notes or go to capchase.com slash slush to learn more. Thanks. Let's go to the episode. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Soaked by Slush podcast. My name is William von der Palen and next to me, almost as usual, Isa Krautia. Yeah, that's right. That's all, not always, but here I am. Most of the time. Hi, viewers and William. Hi. And today, our guest is Scott Sandell from NEA. Great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks so much, guys. Great to be here. Great to have you, as said. And we usually give the floor to our guests uh, right away. We we give them the chance to to describe who they are and what they do. So same goes for you as well. Well, thanks. Um, as you said, I'm Scott Sandell. I'm the managing partner of NEA, the third managing partner in our over 40-year history. Um, I started out as an associate in 1996, became the managing partner a few years ago, and I've invested in lots of wonderful companies over the years, and of course, many that didn't work. Uh, but I view venture capital as an incredible privilege. It's the privilege to invest other people's capital in someone's dreams and to actively help them make those dreams come true. So I feel super lucky every day I get out of bed in the morning. Uh, can you introduce NEA also a little bit? What is the, if you can call it an overarching vision, if there is one? And also, you, I read somewhere that you, uh, there's a, there's a, there's this intent of keeping NEA alive for at least a hundred years. How do you build a company, a company with that kind of uh, stamina, if that's the right word? Well, it's it's sort of interesting, but we had three founders. Um, Dick Kramlick, Frank Bonsell, and Chuck Newhall. And it turns out uh, they um, they had studied the venture capital business, which was you know in its very early stages back in the 70s, but nevertheless had roots that went back much, much farther than that, mostly through family offices. And Chuck Newhall in particular was a real student of venture capital because his father grew up in the business working for Venrock, one of the really, really early firms. Anyway, uh, they noticed that venture firms never seem to last longer than one generation of partners. And so they set out to create something that would last much, much longer than any of them, uh, which obviously we have already. Uh, but their vision was a firm that would last 100 years. And in order to do that, they did a lot of things differently than everybody else. And one of them was they didn't put their name on the door. You'll notice most of the early venture firms have somebody's name on the door. and uh, New Enterprise Associates has nobody's name on the door. Exactly. Yeah. But how hard is that to do? Because often when looking at uh, venture capital or private equity, uh, you might be pretty much uh, screwed after one bad fund. So it's pretty ruthless. You you might have a good good run with a few, two, three funds even, but then you have one bad year and, and you might lose 
lose the trust of, of investors. So how hard is it? Is it only tied to performance or are there some other important metrics to look after as well? Well, it's it's interesting. I think there are a number of things you can do when you're starting a venture capital firm that give you better odds of success. Uh, most limited partners will give you a couple of funds to see if you can perform. And the you know the facts are that most people's first fund is successful. They get into the business because they have a clear idea about something they want to invest in. They have deal flow. They have all these wonderful things. And the first fund is very small. So it's easy for you know one or two deals to make the fund. Everything looks great. Um, and the limited partners don't get to see that result for a while. So it's usually the third fund that's hard to raise if you're not already demonstrating performance. But having said all that, um, you know, one of the things that NEA's founders saw was that scale would matter. So uh, they realized the advantages of scale. And to your question, one of the advantages of scale is that you get you, you get to have a size where uh, one or two partners don't matter. What matters is the strength of the whole team. And that's really helpful, especially uh, if you're trying to build a multi-generational firm. Because you know the reason most of these small firms uh, don't go past one generation is they have one or two superstar investors uh, who don't recruit more superstar investors, and it just flames out. Uh, if you have a really large firm, you have the opportunity to have you know lots of people trying their hand at this craft, and uh, if you you know take mentorship seriously and you're disciplined about it, you have a better than average chance of uh, of continuing to the next generation of investors. Now you mentioned you joined the company in uh, '96. Before that, you were a product manager at Microsoft, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So, how was that transition from the operational side side to investing? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, the The operating world is, in some ways, uh, you know, a great background for getting into venture capital. You understand what the entrepreneurs are trying to do. I was in a startup before Microsoft and before business school, Cat Software, which was an early fintech company, ended up going public on the NASDAQ. So I had some reasonable operating experience when I got in. I would say the biggest difference between operating and venture capital is the time frame. You know, when you're an operator, you're looking for results on a quarterly basis, maybe even a weekly basis. You can see, you know, you establish a set of objectives for the week, you check off your list, you feel good about it, you have a longer term plan. Your longer term plan might only be a year long. In venture capital, you're trying to make decisions, usually in a big hurry, with limited amounts of information. You're going to live with the results, you know, for the entire length of the investment. And the recent statistics, as I'm sure you've seen, are that the average company going public today goes public 12 years after it was founded. So you're making decisions, especially if you're an early stage investor, that you're not going to really know the results of for a decade. That mindset is very, very different and often very difficult for operators to get their heads around. Another thing I found is, you know, I've worked with uh, partners at NEA who were serious operators before they came to NEA, um, and they tend to be, you know, very regimented planners, especially around how they spend their time. They map out their schedule and they don't change it. And, uh, you know, that's that's a luxury we don't have in venture capital because we're responding. Usually, you know, we make investments, we have a certain amount of activities that are scheduled. But when it comes to new investments, you know, entrepreneurs call you when they decide they want to. And if they have something of interest, you know, you drop what you're doing, uh, you know, to chase it because it's an extremely competitive business. There, there's no room for, you know, the, 
there, I don't think there's this misunderstanding today where more and more people understand venture capital. But for many years, I think the, you know, since I got in the business, the, the common sort of uh, perception was that venture capitalists were these fat cats who sat around in their offices with a big fat checkbook waiting for people to come in and could write a check for anything they felt like and getting into deals was no big deal. Well, that might have been true in the 1960s or 70s. But by the time, you know, the late 90s, when I got in the business, it was just the opposite. I mean, you, you know, so you you have control over your time as a venture capitalist, but you, you oftentimes have to to change things around. And that's very hard for operators. Operators don't think that way. Yeah, that's super and, and interesting. And maybe one, yeah. one other thing I could throw in, which is sort of the obvious thing that people think about, but I think for completeness of your question, it's important, which is that uh, when you're a venture capitalist, your job is not to run the companies. In fact, you know, you're you're usually on the board, but the management runs the company. And that is a very, very clear and hard line. And you need to uh, you know, be very mindful of that as a director of these companies. Operators sometimes have a hard time with that because their instinct is to get hold of the wheel and make decisions. And, uh, and so sometimes they, they don't have the right sort of attitude toward the management team. You said that in third person. Are you saying you, you're having trouble with that a little bit? Oh, no, I, I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I, I, I let go of that, you know, 25 years ago. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you've had, obviously, a very impressive list of investments, just to name a few. You've invested in Cloudflare and Salesforce, Coursera, Robinhood. So there's a list of, of really household name companies that most people know. Um, this is a question that most venture capitalists, uh, in my experience, hate, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and maybe find a way to sidestep it. But do you have a favorite investment uh, in your career thus far, and, and <laughs> why would that be? Oh, that's a very dangerous question, William. I know. You know, I, I only stand to offend someone. Um, I don't, you know, I have favorites. I don't have a favorite. But, you know, I'm, I've just been really fortunate to work with a lot of great people and Some of them built wonderful companies. Tableau is another one that comes to mind. I love Tableau from start to finish. Cloudflare, how could I not be, you know, thrilled with Cloudflare? Um, you know, I, there's all the ones you named are, are fabulous. So I honestly don't have a favorite. I, one of the things that's wonderful about the venture business is the variety of things you get to work on. Um, Bloom Energy is another one I love. So, yeah, there's a lot of them. Do you have something that's maybe... If we frame it a different way, something that surprised you or turned out better than expected or went through, I mean, most companies go through hard times uh, along the way, but something, you know, that's been extremely memorable in terms of it, maybe then working out at the end of the day, despite the odds being stacked against the company or, or something like that. You know, um, there are a lot of those actually. And to tell you the truth, those are the ones that you find the most fulfilling And the reason is simple, because usually, you know, you made a difference. You did something to help the company at a time when things looked bleak. And you know that they might not have made it without whatever you did. Uh, the company that first comes to mind, honestly, is a company no one's ever heard of anymore called Threeware. And Threeware was a storage controller company that I waded into with a $1 million check in about 1997, went through four CEOs recapitalized the company twice. I am quite sure it did not exist for all of that without my support. I know that for sure. Um, 
And then, you know, the, the, the luck of it all was kind of a fun story, um, which is that, and th this is actually how leadership transact transitions often present themselves to a venture capitalist, you know, sitting on the board of one of their portfolio companies. And that is that somebody in the management team comes to them and says, look, this is not working. And the person who's running the company is going to run it into the ground unless you make a change. Now, obviously, you have to invest a lot of judgment in deciding what to do next. But in this particular case, um, a woman came to me who was the VP of marketing and said that the current CEO was, I think, our third or fourth CEO uh, was not working out and she was going to leave the company. And I said, really? Well, and, and for me, I already knew there were issues. So I knew what she was saying was sort of a final call to action. And I said, okay, but if there was a different CEO, would you stay? And if so, who would that be? And without missing a beat, she said, Faye Pearman. And I said, who's Faye Pearman? She said, well, Faye Pearman is my old boss at Adapt Tech. And she's amazing. She walks on water. I said, great. Well, what is she doing now? And she said, oh, Faye Pearman's playing tennis. She wants to be a semi-professional tennis player. She retired after Adapt Tech. And I said, well, really, give me her phone number. So she gave me her phone number. I called Faye up. I said, Faye, I'd love to meet you for coffee. She came over to my office and we got to know each other. Very pleasant conversation. You know, she had no idea what my agenda was. And uh, at the end of it, I said, um, you know, Barbara told me about this situation in, in three where, you know, is that a company you'd be interested in running? And she said, well, Scott, uh, not really. I mean, I'm really enjoying playing semi-professional tennis. I've gotten to be pretty good at it, actually. And so, you know, I'm sort of thinking to myself, you know, how am I going to turn this around? And I had this cheeky idea. I said, well, Faye, I'm just curious. I mean, you strike me as somebody who really wants to be the best. Do you think you're ever going to be the best tennis player out there? You know, knowing that that wasn't likely in her early 40s. And she looked at me and she knew, she knew. And sure enough, she became the next CEO of Freeware and turned it around in the most spectacular way. Rec recruited all of her old teammates within a month. We recapitalized the company. I mean, it's a wonderful story. It went on to be very successful, was ultimately acquired. And nobody's ever heard of Threeware, you know, but I, I know I made a difference in that one. Yeah. Is Faye happy? Is Faye happy? Yeah. What you uh, she was very happy. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. <laughs> sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, she was having a lot more fun running freeware than playing tennis. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think you nailed it with that question. Really did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this question, I'm not sure how to ask this, but, but your way of approaching your decision of who to invest. Do you look at your intuition about the founder, product metrics, just your approach? How do you begin to, uh, how would you begin to talk about that? Well, you know, it really depends on the stage of the company. You know, we invested in EA, literally anything from a person who doesn't even have an idea. We incubate the company in the office or bring them in as an executive in residence, for example, um, not even knowing what kind of a company they might want to start. You know, in that case, obviously, it's it's a bet on the person, hundred um, percent. But you know, conversely, at a, looking at a later stage investment, you of course are looking at a lot of metrics to decide to decide, you know, how well that business is doing. Um, but I think 
your question was also a little bit more generic, like just in general, you know, what are you looking for? And to me, it starts with the people always, because, you know, as I said before, if you're not an operator, you're, you're a venture capitalist, you are 100% investing in the people and expecting them to lead the company and make all the important decisions. Maybe they consult you for some of those decisions, but it's 100% the management team and the leadership and the founders. So, uh, so that's where you start. You know, you, you, and what do I look for there? I look for people who have you know, the right kind of values, people who, as we say at NEA, we can live, through, we can live with through thick or thin because there will always be thin. You know, that's the simplest way to think about it. Are these people you want to be in the trenches with? And then beyond that, are they people who, you know, have demonstrated excellence in their lives? To, you know, they're capable of doing this very, very hard thing, which is to start a new company and grow it into something extraordinary. That takes a person who already, you know, has demonstrated excellence in their life. Uh, and then, you know, lastly, um, we're really looking for people who want to build a huge company. Uh, we're not looking for people who just want to flip a company and make a few bucks. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's a perfectly decent life objective. It just isn't what we're looking for. I'm curious to to know if this if there's something that's changed. You have a lot of perspective already. You've seen a lot of founders and and been doing it for a while already. So, are these the same characteristics that you know? Is there something uh, different about entrepreneurs nowadays? Do you need to have, I don't know, not probably different values, but different skill sets, different metrics of excellence to be able to succeed in building a company nowadays, as opposed to maybe in the pre. Um, IT uh, era at the end of the 90s? Yeah. Um, I mean, in general, you know, we're looking for the same kinds of things we were looking for in the late 90s. But I think there is one interesting difference. And that is, you know, there are many of the companies that we're investing in today are leveraging the internet for distribution. You know, they're either consumer internet companies or maybe they're even open source software companies. But fundamentally, they have the power of the internet to get to the customer. And that changes the game quite fundamentally in terms of the kind of company that you have to build. In the old days, let's just take an enterprise software company, for example. In the old days, you had to figure out how to build a sales force. These people typically went to visit customers in person, maybe even wearing suits. You guys remember those things? And <laughs> you know, it was a long sales process. One. Yeah, how about that? So do I. I haven't worn one in a while, but we all, yeah, we remember those days, right? Yeah. And and the sales process itself was so fundamentally different. You know, we had to imagine how we were even going to identify the right customer. Now you start a company with my favorite business model, which is free, and you put something of great value out on the internet. You make it free, and people, you know, respond. Uh, people who are smart enough to know the value of whatever it is you're offering start adopting it, they start talking about it, they promote it to their friends, uh, and the kinds of go-to-market motions and skill sets that you have to have are really different. One byproduct of that, but I think it's an important one, is that you can build a much bigger company with many fewer people and different kinds of people. And so I think the leadership challenges are actually significantly different because in the old days, you had to be able to scale your organization more or less in proportion to the growth of revenue. You know, people and revenue moved up together. Now you can have revenue move up much faster than people. And I think that's a different leadership challenge. 
yeah, I think if you showed some of some of the best companies' revenue per headcount um, today to a, to a company, you know, from the early 1900s, they wouldn't believe it. Um, so, so that's definitely yeah. no, William. Different. That's exactly right. I mean, w- w- we actually think the physics of starting businesses are different. What do I mean by that? The, the atomic units of building a business are different. You can look at any part of a business today. Just look at software development. Software development. You know, developers are five times as productive as they were a couple of decades ago. Does that mean they're five times smarter? Did they study better things at school? No, that's not what that means at all. It means that there are libraries of code that you can leverage to build something. So you're assembling things from piece parts that already exist and stitching stuff together and adding something on top. And the, the combined effort is five times more productive. You look at, as we just talked about, distribution. You know, the economics of distribution are wildly different on the internet than they were, you know, 15, well, 25 years ago anyway. So, so you know, customer support, self-serve, customers help themselves. If you put up the right materials on your website, all this stuff is is completely different than it was before the internet. Exactly, yeah. And uh, not to go down this side road, route, but it seems like there's... Um... Since everything is being democratized in terms of the the things you mentioned with with open source and and with distribution channels and with the internet, it seems that it's a narrower skill set that you can differentiate yourself with as opposed to maybe 50 years ago. And that also means probably there's going to be more competition in in terms of being. It, there's also more opportunity, of course. But it's it's interesting. So in in that sense, it's probably a bit different being an entrepreneur today than it was uh, back in the days. Well, I think that's right. And even since COVID started you know, with fully distributed companies. Of course, open source companies have been distributed for a long time, but now we're seeing, you know, companies that um, view being fully distributed as a huge hiring, you know, advantage. And they're able to tap into talent, you know, all over the place in, in a, a more comprehensive way than than they would have thought possible before. And those companies are are finding, you know, much better retention and much, much better success in recruiting and the companies are kind of stuck in trying to get everyone back to the office in one location. At least that's my observation across our portfolio. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have any uh, recent investments, any recent uh, companies that have you has made you, you know, really genuinely excited about investing? I don't know if you, you probably have been uh, excited about investing all the time, but something that's really like sparked the inspiration and reminded you of why you why you do this. Um, as you said, you're lucky to get out of bed every morning, but is, is there something like special? How much time do you have? Yeah, of course. Um, but since you guys are in in Helsinki, I can't help but think of a company a little bit farther south of you, Inkit, in Germany, which um, you know we just invested in a couple of months ago. Fantastic company. And what excites me about it is that, uh, first of all, this is an idea I had 25 years ago when the internet first burst on the scene, which is to publish books on the internet. Why would you publish books in paper and then put them on the internet or have someone read them, have, you know, take books published in a traditional way, have someone read them in, you know, on Audible or something. Why not just publish them to begin with on the internet? And that's what Inkit does. Um, And they take it a step farther, which is that they leverage the readership on the internet and their own uh, artificial intelligence to improve the, the books and the stories themselves. 
which is really, really amazing. And the, and the metrics are incredible. The company's growing like 50% month over month. You guys should check oh. it out. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely do. Yes, uh, kind of um, the same uh, same vein. I mean, I guess if you're an investor, you have to have some sort of, I guess, generalist's idea of what's going on in the world. Uh, what what excites you about? Like, what industry, industry vertical, company type, is there technology? Is there it's a complete open general question? What what excites you out there? What do you see going on? Well, you know, Isaac, as you as you said, opportunity favors the prepared mind. So you always have to be thinking about what you're looking for, what's going to come next. As I said a minute ago, I've been looking for Inkit for 25 years, literally. So, you know, you have all these theses in your head. I mean, some of the big ones today that you just can't ignore, fintech is amazing, right? We have an incredible fintech portfolio, and it just seems, it seems like an industry that's right for disruption and digitalization. You know, we're early investors in Robinhood and Plaid, uh, Divi Pay, uh, and, and a bunch of other ones. So, Uh, and then if you if you add crypto in as sort of the latest phenomena of fintech, um, you know, the, the sky is sort of the limit there. So that's one. I mean, you, you can't have a conversation like this without thinking of artificial intelligence, which I think we're still in the relatively early innings of. But nevertheless, already we can see how powerful it is. Um, we have and, and in terms as an investor, we're looking really at everything from you know, the infrastructure required to support uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Think of companies like Databricks, um, which we were fortunate to be early in, uh, and a whole host of others, uh, all the way up to the applications of it, which uh, today are still relatively constrained, but I think over time will be more and more powerful. Yeah, no, it's... You know, I, 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 by the way, I should confess that, you know, I grew up as a member of our tech team, But I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about what's going on in healthcare, um, including the application of information technology to healthcare, you know, for drug discovery, for efficiency, all kinds of things, uh, not to mention delivery, you know, digital platforms for delivery. Yeah, no, I think it's a super exciting time to to both probably invest, but also be an entrepreneur. And, and uh, there's so much much opportunity out there um, at the moment and so much stuff that needs to be disrupted. Uh, and maybe also for the first time it's possible to to disrupt. Uh, looking at AI, for instance, now it's, uh, I mean, we've been playing around with the GPT-3 a little bit here in, in Finland as well. And like, just, it's just, yeah, it's pretty perplexing uh, actually. And, and give it another five years and I think, right. you know, All all stuff like that will um, <laughs> will be pretty interesting. So, yeah. Um, but if you look at the change that's happening now, it's probably it's it's very fast and the, the pace uh, is growing uh, all the time. Uh, but how much how much has the tech world changed uh, since you started? Maybe yeah, you started at Microsoft. So, how different uh, is everything now? There's been quite a few big disruptions on the way still. I mean, it's bigger, right? Everything has another zero or two attached to it. Um, but in most ways, it's, you know, fundamentally, much of it is still the same. And I think people who haven't been in the business that long think, you know, every time something happens that seems new to them, you know, the people who've been around a little bit longer can remember that this has happened before. Um, you know, we're in the middle of a wonderful cycle. Um, you know, obviously, since the global financial crisis, everything's been going up and to the right. Um, and people think, 
you know, the venture capital business moving so fast. It's so competitive. There's so much money. Deals are getting done at amazing valuations and so on and so forth. Feels exactly like the 1990s to me, the late 90s. In that sense, I think there are vast differences. And this is a much better time because the fundamentals of the companies are much better. But just in terms of the industry dynamics, it's not that different. Uh, I suppose finally, uh, speaking on innovation, uh, the VC model uh, was invented in the 70s, uh, but we've seen some uh, innovation within that model in the past uh, past few years. Uh, what are your thoughts on the on the sort of the need or the the opportunities to innovate as an investor on that old uh, old model, quote unquote old model, not that old? Yeah. Well, I, I think the first thing to note is that you don't get to survive for 40 years without constantly innovating in terms of the the model that you employ. And and certainly our founders did that and and we continue to do that. We're always looking to make things better. Um, You know, we've been one of the biggest for a long time. We We were really big before it was fashionable to be big. And people thought for the longest time, our limited partners said, you know, you can't make, you just can't have good returns that are better than the little funds if you're a big fund. And that's been disproven. Um, So, you know, what you get when you're big is you get consistency and diversification and some other wonderful things that the littler funds don't have. We've also been really long-term oriented from the very beginning. You know, most funds have been 10-year funds. We started with 12-year funds, extendable for three years at our option, and we've never closed a fund down in less than 15 years. So we have a very long-term orientation that has served us really well. I mean, fundamentally, you know, you can't build really big companies overnight. Just look at you know, they, they sort of burst on the scene overnight usually, but, you know, the antecedents and the history usually go back for quite a ways. And since we're interested in, in helping entrepreneurs build really large, independent, enduring companies, we've been structured to support that, you know, over a long period of time for, from the beginning. Um, I think more generally, you know, what, what has really happened in the last 20 years is an enormous shift. I think it started really for regulatory reasons. Um, you know, after the global financial crisis, but the, the number of IPOs has, has basically until the last two years fallen precipitously. Uh, and, and the number of private companies has, has fallen by 50% in the last 20 years. Uh, you know, fewer companies going public, but also um, public companies going private, thanks to the private equity business. So, you know, a lot of, of um, value has shifted to the private markets, and that's where most of the growth is. So I think what you're gonna see in the next 20 years are a lot of different innovations that happen within the private markets, as opposed to just looking at the public markets as the sort of final destination for companies. Yeah. One, maybe an objective observer looking at the venture capital business model, this is not necessarily my um, my personal opinion, but if you looked at the, the business model, someone might maybe say that it's a bit, a bit wasteful in a way, uh, in, in the sense that your funds are usually um, contingent on a few big breaks, a few, few companies being fund returners. Um, and then you end up also investing in quite a lot of businesses that will fail uh, looking at the statistics. Do you think there's a need or either, even a way to to solve for this and to create something that would be quote unquote less wasteful? I don't know if it's, wastefulness is the right word, but maybe you you catch what I'm, I'm, I'm uh, talking about. Well, William, I, I would challenge the assumption, right? I mean, if you look 
if you look at venture capital, venture capital invests an incredibly small percentage of the GDP. If you just look at the United States, it's less than half a percent of GDP over the last 50 years has created something like 20% of the economy and more than 10% of private job creation. All net new jobs basically come from venture-backed startups or small companies in America. Um, so I would say this is the most efficient capital deployed by a screaming wide margin. Uh, so why is that true? Well, it's true because we're able to invest small amounts of capital, which have a very high chance of failing. But if they succeed, you know, they, they grow to be really significant creators of value. Uh, and what you say is absolutely true, by the way, that most of the returns come from a small percentage of the dollars. That, that's true, not just at NEA. It's true across the industry, and it's true not just for the last decade, it's true for the last five decades. So it is, it is an unfortunate byproduct of our business model that not everything succeeds, but that's because we take a lot of risk. And very few organizations in the world are prepared to take the kind of risk that venture capitalists take to enable entrepreneurs to do uh, very risky things, which, when they work, change the world. They change the way we live, work, and play, which is what we're aiming to do at NEA. Yeah, exactly. And there's like no other mechanisms at the moment uh, that enable entrepreneurs to take that that big big risks that uh, venture capitalists uh, or capital does. So, I think in in terms of market structure, it has also in, in itself it has a it has a very very relevant relevant place. No doubt. Which is, I mean, we think of it as that as the goose that keeps laying golden eggs, and we we hope that it doesn't get disrupted by regulations or other things. It's working very well. Yeah. Is there maybe to to round off? Um, there's a lot of talk now in in basically all of investing, also looking at um, you know institutional investors and and uh, really big funds. There's a lot of talk about the allocation of capital and 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 allocating the capital for good, maybe for ESG purposes and trying to influence um, you know the solving of the biggest problems uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. Is this something you can? Or are factoring in into your model? Is it something that that's good for for the model, or or is it is is there a risk that you uh, you end up deviating too far from just a demand driven uh, model and, and trying just to find the best entrepreneurs with the, the best ideas? Well, we actually think that the mission driven companies have a better chance of success than the companies that don't seem to have some clear purpose. Um, you know, the, the reasons are pretty obvious. They attract better people. Those people are not necessarily just motivated by making money. So they, you know, they'll stick around when things aren't going well, which is always going to be the case somewhere on the journey to success. And, you know, we have a whole bunch of companies that that fit with that. You know, back to your point about ESG, as soon as we're finished, I'll be going to a Goodleap board meeting. And, you know, if you're not familiar with Goodleap, um, you know, they, they finance about 40% of residential solar installations in the United States today. You know, they're trying to bend the arc on climate change and doing an amazing job of it. And they fundamentally, they create an asset class, which is very attractive for investors, uh, not because, you know, it's making the world better, but because the return characteristics are better. The default rate on the loans is lower. Um, so, I think you can you can actually do good and do well in in the world we're living in, and I think that 
you know, the the private sector is more likely to make a big difference. than I'd love for the public sector to make a difference. There's a lot of obvious things to do, and hopefully they're making uh, progress on that. But uh, I think the big gains uh, will more like more than likely come from the private sector. Yeah, no, for sure. I still remember when the school books said that the only that there's no way for you can't you're not allowed to make money while doing good. There's like no, it's not it's not a good mix. And I remember reading that and thinking that okay, well that's an interesting take. Uh, <laughs> seems like you know incentivizing smart people to do good things is probably a good idea overall. So yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah. It's what gets us out of bed every day at NEA. And I'm quite sure it's why a lot of people have come to work at our firm and stay, you know, for much of their careers. Exactly. Well, I mean, Scott, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining and for sharing your your thoughts. Well, it's great to be with you guys. I'm I'm sorry I won't be at Slush this year, but I look forward to coming another year. I've been there a few times. It's a wonderful event. And uh hope you guys uh, enjoy yourselves and, and ha- have a great success. Thanks. Yeah, we look look forward to having you here here again. And thanks to all the listeners and viewers. See you in the the next episode. Take care until then. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed your visit to that conversation as much as we did. Now, if you want to stay updated and keep in touch with us, please subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us on Spotify. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and then Facebook. You guessed it. Soap by Slush. Thank you people for listening. Bye-bye.